Morning, everybody. Uh, my name is David Soren. I'm the lead pastor here at Renovation Church. Uh, happy Mother's Day to everyone. You know, I think a lot of us spend time thinking about the afterlife. What will, what will come next after we die? But I think the older that you get, the more you probably spend thinking about it. I've seen that even in my own life. But I find like a lot of people in America, we think about it, but we just sort of stop at the basics, right? And I think a question for us is how much time have you actually spent thinking, or maybe more importantly, studying what will come when this life is over? Now, as we're continuing in our study through the book of Luke in the Bible, uh, Jesus today is going to give us, it's kind of cool, a bit more detail on what life will be like in heaven for the Christian. Now, if you were here uh, last week or caught last week's message, you saw that uh, Jesus' opponents were trying to trap him with sort of a trick question, and it obviously failed because, well, he's Jesus. Uh, This week, another group of people, the Sadducees this time, are going to try and get Jesus to stumble on a question. So we talked just a tiny bit about the Sadducees uh, last week, but let me kind of bring you up to speed here, and it may be your very first week here. If so, we're, we're pumped that you're here. So you have these two groups of people, and they're kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum of each other. First, you have the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were sticklers for following every letter of the law, and they even added some extra ones. Well, the Sadducees are on the opposite end of the continuum, right? They're totally willing to just adapt and change their faith so that they can change with the culture in power. And in this case, it's the Romans who are taking over their land. Uh, In many ways, these Sadducees are sort of ancient predecessors of uh, progressive Christians today. Now, I just want time out here. I, I mean that in no sort of connection to any sort of a politics or political platform. Uh, I actually wish there was a different title for it. I feel like it would be less confusing. That's sort of the label that culture has given Christians today, progressive Christians or progressive Christianity, for those who are labeling themselves as Christians and yet have abandoned many of the core tenets of Christianity so that they could more fully embrace the culture. Uh, the Sadducees, like many or most progressive Christians today, they believed in God, but not the supernatural, <clears throat> which I always feel like doesn't make sense to me, because like, isn't God supernatural? But that's, that's the prevailing belief. Uh, the Sadducees, they didn't believe that God's word was 100% true, much like many uh, of those who claim the name of Christ today in progressive Christianity. Uh, they didn't uh, believe in miracles. And the Sadducees took it a step further. Uh, they didn't even believe in the resurrection. And so they thought, yes, God exists, but after you die, you die, and you basically cease to exist. So they didn't believe in the resurrection, which is actually how you can remember their name. Because they didn't believe in the resurrection, they were sad, you see. <laughs> Get a <clears throat> Thank you to the person who laughed uh, in the center. I just, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you later. I appreciate that. Uh, the Sadducees, like many people today, you know, they were spiritual, really kind of in name only, right? They weren't quite ready to give up their faith, but their real God was the culture and fitting in with it. And so they actually don't like Jesus because Jesus is challenging them on where they're getting their authority from. So let's take a look at the interaction that the Sadducees and Jesus are going to have today. Everybody grab a Bible. I see many of you grabbed it already. There's a Bible in front of your chair. Everybody grab one, or many of you bring your own, whatever you do. Oh, let's open up the Word together. We're going to be on page 718 from the Bibles that are here, or you can use the Renovation Church app. Just have Bible and weekly verses. 
By the way, if you don't have a Bible, you've just kind of been coming to church, you're getting back into church, I want you to take this Bible with you today. I don't know if you know this, but somebody takes one of these Bibles almost every week. We're giving these away. So you don't have to feel weird about taking it. We want you to read it for yourself. There's even a little, on, taped on the inside cover, there's a little reading plan that will show you the best and easiest places to start in the Bible. So take that with you today. That's our gift to you. So we are in Luke chapter 20, which we've been hanging out for about a month or so. <clears throat> and now we have gotten to verse 27. So look for that little number 27, and that's where we're at. Here's what it says. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, see, they were sad, you see, uh, come to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and the third married her, and in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy, to be t- worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection." But in the account of the burning bush, so he's going to quote from the book of Exodus now in the Old Testament, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. Okay, so let's start by kind of examining this question, this wild scenario that the Sadducees throw at Jesus. They come up with this scenario about these seven brothers, right? Because they're trying to prove to Jesus, because remember, they don't believe in the resurrection. So they're trying to prove to Jesus that if you actually carry out the implications of the resurrection and you think about it, it's illogical, right? They're going, okay, there's a woman, she shows up, she gets to heaven and and is going, oh no, there's seven of you, right? (laughs) And so she's thinking, what in the world? And so they're using this as an example to say to Jesus, see the resurrection, it doesn't actually make sense. Now, while they're using this example, they refer to a law from the Old Testament. It's actually from Deuteronomy chapter 25, uh, if you want to read it. Now, many of these laws in Deuteronomy and kind of in the greater law section of the Old Testament uh, were specifically for the Israelites and the governing of their nation in that time, and so they're not binding on Christians today. Now, if you want to learn more about this concept, and this is a concept that I think almost no one out of Christianity understands, and I actually think a lot of Christians don't understand, when do we apply the Old Testament to ourselves? When is it binding on us, and when is it not? If you want to learn more about that, uh, you can. This week, there's a message you can listen to on our website section, on our app, too. Uh, We did a verse-by-verse series through the whole book of Exodus a few years ago, And there's a message in our rescue series on Exodus. If you want to write it down, it's just called, The Bible Says That. And if you look that up, we cover this principle. How do you know when to apply the Old Testament and when not to apply? Well, in Jesus' day, the Jewish people, they're still bound by all of these laws. And so they quote this law from Deuteronomy 25, and they essentially explained it correctly. If a woman's husband died, his brother 
was to marry her, and then their first son together would actually carry on the family name of the brother who died so that the deceased brother's family line could still continue. Now, this is a law that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us, right, in our sort of wealthy, modern, individualistic culture, but in an ancient, collectivist, agrarian society where, by the way, because of how society was structured, it was extremely difficult for women to independently support themselves because of how their society was, this law from God is actually a merciful provision to make sure that women were still cared for in their society. And by bringing up this scenario where a woman at the resurrection is going to have seven husbands, the Sadducees are convinced that they've proved that the resurrection actually doesn't make any sense. But they're about to meet their match and then some in the brilliance of Jesus, right? Now, as we begin to study Jesus' response, I actually want to point you to the book of Matthew because Matthew actually also recounts this interaction and he chooses to include an additional statement that Jesus made right as he began to answer the Sadducees. And I think this is really helpful. In fact, I love this verse. So here's the first thing Jesus says to them. Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine. Jesus replied, you are in error. Right? There's truth and there's not truth. They don't have the truth right now. You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. I love this verse. I love it. I actually think it is such an astute summary of even people today who are claiming the name of Christian, but they have deviated away from the truths of God's word. And the truth is they don't know the scriptures. They're not actually studying the scriptures And they definitely don't know the power of God. And the fact is that the Sadducees, they really didn't understand the power of God for sure. They didn't know the scriptures either. But the power of God thing is really evident here. It's like as they're thinking of heaven and what the resurrection will be like, it's like they can't even get themselves to imagine the good things that God has prepared for those who love him. It's 1 Corinthians 2. Now, before we go any further to diving in, I want you to see this again, because this is kind of deep. So a lot of you still have it open. Look again at 34 and 36. We're just going to read it again so you can narrow in on this. Jesus replied, the people of this age, so that's the life that we're in right now, marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead. So those who have accepted Christ, Jesus is their savior, he's going to be resurrected will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they're like the angels. They're God's children, since they're children of the resurrection. Okay, so Jesus is saying, this is a bit shocking, right? Or from some of you, you're going, I didn't even know this was in Scripture. Some of you are going, I've read this before, but I, what does this even mean? Jesus is saying that in heaven, people aren't going to get married. They won't be given in marriage. Marriage, in a sense, as a designation, will cease. It's kind of a bit of a startling statement, right? Uh, Let me first tackle why this feels kind of startling to us. I think for many people, when we think about heaven, we mostly picture life being kind of similar to here, like slightly better, but like in a different place, in heaven, like more clouds and such, right? And that's partly why the Sadducees when they're picturing what they think other people are thinking of the resurrection, they're going, yeah, it's like earth, and if you're there and you have seven houses, like, isn't that awkward? But heaven isn't going to be just a continuation of earth. Uh, I read this from uh, Pastor Alistair Begg this week. I thought this was a really good way to explain it. He says, the afterlife 
isn't just resuscitation, right? It's not just that they, I woke up and I'm in a different place. It's a complete transformation. So when you get to heaven, it isn't just, okay, your life continues and now you're just living somewhere else. When you get to heaven, everything is better. Everything is better. I think I mentioned, that was maybe in December or January, that I, over the last year or so, have been reading uh, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. That's like the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe and the Seven Books uh, to my twins. And uh, we finally finished. And uh, we got to just finish the last book. The last book is called The Last Battle. I got to tell you, the last few chapters of that book, uh, some of the most brilliant writing I have ever read. Uh, he's, it's so brilliant because he's like, it's, it's a children's book, right? And there's so many things that are at this high level, too, as an adult that you can really enjoy. The last few chapters outside of scripture are probably the most inspiring thing that I have ever read on heaven. And you get to the end of the book, I'm totally giving away, I'm sorry. Uh, It's okay though, because it's basically like an allegory of the Christian life. So if you've read the Bible, I'm not actually giving it away. Okay. You get to the end and the character's beloved land of Narnia is destroyed. Much like here, our earth will pretty much be destroyed at the end of the world with all the plagues and stuff in the book of Revelation. But then, at death, they're taken to this place that looks really similar to their land, their homeland, Narnia. It's like the same, but it's 100% better in every single way. Much like the Bible describes that how at the end of our world, heaven is actually going to come down to earth and renew earth. And when that happens, one of the characters on experiencing this resurrection and seeing the new version of his old land, he says this. I love this. I'm going to read this to you. He says, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. So the things that you love about life and earth will experience in a more enhanced, incredible way in heaven. It's the same, but everything, everything is better because we're finally in God's kingdom fully realized. His full kingdom has come, and we're in the presence of God. This passage, though, really starts getting into questions about marriage, and we have a whole lot of them. But before we dive into, like, what exactly is he talking about with marriage, let me answer a question that a lot of you just are stuck on, and you won't be able to move past in your mind until I answer it. And that question is this. If marriage ceases, then will we even know each other? Will we even recognize each other? I think this scripture teaches clearly that we will. If if you have it open, look at verse 37. We're not going to put it up, but if, if you're looking at it, Verse 37, God says that he's the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. Now, when God says that through the burning bush to Moses, he doesn't say, I'm the God of people formerly known as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are now dead. He doesn't say, I'm the God of people who used to be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but now they're just like three anonymous spirits floating around. No, he says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Essentially, if you were to die and go to heaven and you used to know them on earth, you'd probably recognize them because they're still Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, In Luke chapter 16, which we all went through, you know, there's that story of Jesus tells a story about the rich man who goes to hell. And even in hell, 
he asked that someone would go back to his family members, which he still knew and could talk about, to warn them about that place. Second Samuel chapter 12, another good example. King David, his infant son, dies. And then he, he utters this famous line. He says, I will go to him. In other words, someday he's going to die, and he's going to go to heaven. And not only will King David go to heaven, he's saying, I will see my son, and I will recognize my son. And there's a lot of examples like that in the scripture. So the answer to the question of will we know each other, will we recognize each other, yes, absolutely. But I think really the big question of this passage is, well, if we will know each other, but marriage isn't going to exist in the same sort of way, then won't heaven somehow be less happy? You feel that? I feel that when I, when I read through this passage. How could, how could everything still be better if marriage is going to cease to exist in the same way? Here on earth, you think about marriage. And this is why this question is perplexing for us. Marriage is such a key part of our culture, right? It's maybe becoming less and less so. But for history, it has been such a huge part. Like, we think about marriage all the time. Kids grow up dreaming about who they're going to marry, what their wedding will be like. You, many of you ladies, by the time you got to like 7th or 8th grade, you were writing your first name and then just, just practicing how to write the name of your crush as your last name, right? We just we think about marriage. It's a really big deal. So the idea that marriage as a designation would cease to matter and that life could still then somehow be better is actually a bit baffling to us. And I think one of the things that we want to realize biblically is that here on earth, marriage is meant to be an illustration of something that points to our greater marriage with Christ. That's Ephesians chapter 5. If you want to read a great book on this, uh, Timothy Keller has a wonderful book called The Meaning of Marriage that points to this exact thing. It's also just a great general book on marriage. Because the teaching of the New Testament is that Jesus is the groom, and the church, that's us, we are the bride. And at that moment, when you meet him in the afterlife, we actually studied this about a year ago, Luke chapter 14, that moment when we meet him is called the great wedding feast. And as your new life begins there with Jesus, there will be no more need for an illustration of marriage or a shadow of marriage, or an example of the perfect marriage, because you will have the perfect, supreme marriage and relationship with Jesus Christ. And if in your heart you're going, I don't know, something just doesn't feel right on this, I want you to trust Jesus on this, who's teaching you about this. I'll, let me explain to you why, for some of us, it just feels like a little out of kilter, I think it's kind of like this. If you were to go up to a young kid and you said to a, like a young kid, you said, what is, you're talking to a five-year-old or a six-year-old, you say, what is the greatest earthly pleasure that you could imagine? They're going to look at you and they're going to say, candy, <laughs> chocolate, right? Something like that. Okay? Now, as adults, we know that in terms of purely physical pleasure, there are some greater pleasures, right, in a godly married context. But if you talk to a kid and you said, can you even imagine a greater pleasure than just a bowl full of candy 
passed across the table to you. They're going to look at you and say, no, I cannot. And they literally can't. Their brain neither has the knowledge of it, nor does it even have the ability to comprehend something greater at that point. And I think it's really similar for us. As we think about Jesus is saying, all throughout the New Testament, and the writers of the New Testament are saying, in heaven, everything is better. It's going to be so good, so great. It's different, but it is better. And we're going, yeah, but I don't, we're kind of like the kid thinking about what seriously could be better than candy. There just isn't. But he's saying there is. There is, there is, there is. And that's where we just have to come and trust that you have a good, good father. And he is preparing a place for you that even though you're going, how could it be better? It is better. And we trust him in that. John Piper says it this way. I love this quote. He says, if the age to come, so you're thinking about heaven, is not only an improvement over the worst of this world, but also over the best, then the end of marriage is spectacularly good news. Do you see this? Marriage in this age, at its best, offers some of life's most intense pleasures and sweetest intimacies. If you've ever tasted these, or have dreamed of tasting them, then you can feel the astonishing force of the promise that marriage will be no more because it was too weak to carry God's best eternal pleasures. In other words, what he's saying is that the fellowship, the relationship that you as a Christian are going to have with God in heaven is going to be so amazing so pleasurable, so deeply satisfying that even marriage, which can bring us some of life's highest highs, won't even be necessary because of what you'll have in Jesus. And married people, I would also want to remind you in this message, please remember that many people are not married. Many people have marriages that aren't all that fulfilling. And also realize when Jesus is saying this 2,000 years ago, halfway around the globe, because we always, when we study and interpret the Bible, we want to think about the original context. When he's teaching this originally, for most of his hearers, marriage is just primarily a social contract that provided stability, security, and opportunity for your sort of family line to continue. Love and affection in marriage were a distant second and third for the reasons in which why you got married. But no matter where you are on the spectrum or no matter what your social situation is in life, the reality is all of us have this deep longing for affection, to be loved, to be known, to be cared for. And in heaven, God himself is going to directly provide that for you. That is awesome. So will you be married in heaven? The answer is Yes, to Jesus. That is the teaching of the New Testament. Now, for those of you that are married, I, I don't think you, I don't want you to feel sad about what your relationship with your spouse might be like in heaven. Now, the teaching here is that marriage as a designation, because of our marriage to Jesus, our relationship to Jesus, Marriage as an earthly designation becomes unimportant. But remember what we kind of said earlier, and I was talking about this a little bit when we were quoting the Chronicles of Narnia. The Bible's teaching in the afterlife is not that everything degrades and falls away. No, everything is enhanced. Everything is more important. It's, in a sense, upgraded. And so 
You think about heaven, well, what are the streets like? Well, they're gold now. What are the rivers like? Well, they're clear as crystal. What's the sky like? You don't even need a sun because just the brightness of God is so good. Everything is enhanced. And so out of that, I believe that your relationship with your spouse will be even closer in heaven because there's no sin anymore in your relationships. It's just that, all this is saying is just that the way that we define ourselves on earth will essentially become irrelevant because we define ourselves first and foremost by our relationship with the king. Does that make sense? And so one of the real life practical applications of this that some of you will experience, and it might be 10 years from now, for many of you it could be 40 years from now, is heaven forbid, what do you do if your spouse dies? And you're still 40 years old. You're 60 years old, right? What do you do? Well, the teaching of this is if you feel led by the Holy Spirit to marry another believer, then you can feel the freedom to do so. And what this is teaching is you need not fear any awkwardness or jealousy or anything like that in heaven because those things don't exist in heaven. And besides, in heaven, the designation that matters is your primary relationship to Jesus, and you won't even be thinking about those other earthly designations. Now, this is really interesting stuff, right, to kind of dive in and start studying the scriptures. That's kind of what we've been doing as we're marching through Luke. I encourage you, there's more you can study here. Uh, if, if when I was talking about how heaven's going to come down to earth and renew earth, you're going, I, what? Like, I maybe heard that before, or maybe I've never heard that. Study the Bible. Read the Bible. Uh, take the Bible with you. Two chapters you can read this week that I think you'll find fascinating. Go to the end of your Bible. Read the very last two chapters of the Bible. Revelation 21 and 22, and that's where you'll learn about how heaven actually comes down and renews earth. But let me ask you something as we think about like studying heaven and studying scripture. Isn't it interesting in our culture how confidently the average person speaks about heaven and what it'll be like and who will be there? What's interesting is that's the exact thing that Jesus is speaking against in this passage. He's correcting the Sadducees because they're so boldly speaking about something that they don't really understand because they don't know the scriptures and they don't know the power of God. And don't we do the same thing in America? I want you to think about this, right? Like someone in your life, you're, you're getting ready to go to a funeral. Someone in your life has died. Maybe it's a family member, a coworker, a neighbor, a friend or something. And what do we say? What does the average person in America say when that happens? We say things like, we have all these sort of colloquial sayings like, oh, well, they're in a better place. And we always say that, right? Or we say, she's with grandma now. Or we say, he's up in heaven playing baseball just like old times. We say, they're, they're in heaven smiling down on us. And I, I just want to look out to the culture sometimes and I want to say, how do you know that? I'm not trying to be offensive. I'm, I'm really not. I'm just trying to ask a, a really serious question. Because I think many people, I don't know, maybe 95% of Americans, they speak with uttermost confidence they're in a better place on these sort of things without, for many of them, having ever even opened the Bible. And it is an odd thing. I dare say it's even an unwise thing to base where you will be 
or where your friend will be for all of eternity off of speculation. And isn't that exactly what we do in this country? We say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure they're in a better place. Do you know? Do we absolutely know? And my friend, I just encourage you, don't make that monumental mistake. You're going to spend eternity, that's forever, in either heaven or hell. It is not something to guess about. Please, if you are not, if there's anyone in this room that is not absolutely sure where you're going to spend eternity, I encourage you, look into it. I mean, you don't even have to just take my word for it. Look into yourself. That's why I said take a Bible with you. Absolutely study it. Learning about where you're going to spend the next billions and trillions of years of your life is actually the most important thing you will ever do on earth, right? Well, who cares about investing for a retirement for 15 years? Where are you going to be for the next six trillion years? I hope that you want to know that. Don't be like the rest of this country that just says, oh, I'm sure they're in a better place. You're sure? How do you know? Invest in that in terms of knowledge. Study it. Look into it. He'll give you the 90-second summary right now. The teaching of Jesus is that God sent Jesus, his son, to die on a cross for you. This is the quintessential verse of Christianity, John 3.16. For God so loved the world, you, that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And what's that, what's, what that's saying is you don't get to heaven simply by being a good person. You don't get to heaven just because God says, all right, everybody's coming up here. It says, no, the, the way that you have eternal life in heaven is by believing that Jesus Christ, God's son, died on the cross in place of your sins. And when you believe in that, he's taking the punishment for your sins off of you and on to Jesus. And when you make that decision to say, I believe you died in my place, I want to become a follower of yours. Because it's not as simple as saying, I believe and I'm going to live my life like normal. It's saying, I believe and I will become your follower. When you make that decision, God will radically change your life. You'll be saved. And you can have the gift of eternal life. And so if you've been thinking about this the last couple weeks even, or maybe it's just hitting you hard right now, and you're going, I need to make that decision. I, I want the gift of eternal life. I want to know God forever. I want to be saved. You can make that decision today. In fact, let's just do this. We'll, we're going to close here with like a song or two. I'm just, I'm just going to pray in a second, and then I'm just going to walk out into the lobby. And if any time you're going, i got to make this decision. I need, I need to be saved. I need to have someone pay for my sins. I, I, I want to go to heaven for <laughs> all of eternity. I want to become a follower of Jesus. If, if that's you, I'm just going to be out in the lobby. I'll be waiting kind of outside the door. And if you're ready to make that decision, would you just walk out during the song, and I will meet you out there. I'll pray with you, and I'll get you started on how to do this. Does that sound okay? All right, let's do that. I'll pray. God, thank you so much uh, for these words that you gave us on heaven. We are looking forward to it, God. It's hard to understand some of the things in our childlike mind sometimes, but in our hearts, God, we feel expectancy and excitement. And we just look forward to the day where we can look you in the eyes and worship you and thank you that you would die for people like us. In your name we pray. Amen.